Good morning, One Church. How y'all doing? Fantastic. You guys are awake. I'm so excited about that. And we're at the beginning of a new series entitled Your Big Moment, where we're going to be going through the book of Esther. So whether you're in the room joining us live or if you're on our online campus, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We're so honored that you're here. And uh, if you would, if you have a Bible, go ahead and start turning to the book of Esther because it's going to take you a while to find it. It is in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, so you're going to need to be in the left-hand side of your Bible. And um, if you get like Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, you know, you're, you're kind of close there, you might want to look at your table of contents. So if you get to a, like a book that looks like Job or Job, you are really, really close. So I'll give you a heads up. So, and uh, we're entitling this series, Your Big Moment, because all of us, many of us, we ask, when is my big moment going to happen? You know, uh, and we're not just talking about fame or stardom, but all of us, we have defining moments in our lives. We do. If you think about them, if you look on your past, you have some really big pivotal moments that really help define and shape who you are. And one of the things as we're digging into this series is we're going to be looking at your big moments, those defining moments that mark you and that shape our lives. Now, all of us, you wonder, how are you going to be remembered? How are you going to be remembered? And here's something that kind of bothers me and intrigues me at the same time is that have you ever noticed when someone dies, a person sums up their life, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years worth of living, that they sum up their life in a sentence, in a soundbite. You know, when somebody passes away, when they just pass away, you know, there's a lot of words and, you know, the, the preacher will say a bunch of words and the family will say a bunch of words, but when time passes... And, you know, 5, 10, 15 years pass, but somebody, when they remember that life, years of life, they will just re reduce it to a soundbite, to a sentence. Like, oh yeah, my grandfather, he was blank. Or my grandmother, she was like blank. Or maybe somebody doesn't even have to die. Maybe it's somebody who's kind of moved away and moved out of your life in a season of your life. And when you look back on the time that you spent with that friend, you could say, you know what? She used to and she was blank. And all of us, we, we have this tendency to take an entire life and reduce it to a sentence or to a soundbite. And, you know, uh, that Bill could have lived for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and when Bill passes away, when somebody remembers Bill's life, it's like, yeah, Bill, he was a good dad. He was funny. He made me laugh. Or Bill, he, he loved his wife. And it, it's, it's crazy how you can just, uh, 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 maybe sometimes, maybe it's a character trait, how you can say, well, Bill was blank. And it, you, get, you, you reduce it down to a character trait. And I just think that's interesting how, what will people say about you? And how will you be remembered? What will, be, be, what will people be talking about you when you're gone? Some person once said this. He says, live your life in such a way that the pastor doesn't have to lie at your funeral. I think that's interesting, right? I think that's interesting. But all of us, there's going to be a time where we're going to be off this planet and somebody is going to look back on your life and my life and they're going to say, oh yeah, Jill was like this or Chris was like this or Sally was this. You know, I, one of the things I do uh, is I do a lot of funerals as a pastor and I always tell people, you know, I always like doing funerals better than I like doing weddings because I know people will stay dead. 
I don't know if people will stay married, right? And uh, I, I, as, a, as a pastor, one of the things I, I just disliked was going to hospitals and going to funerals because it reminded me of my own mortality. And none of us like to be reminded that we're not, we're not going to live forever. And uh, I'll tell you, the more I've changed, the more I've matured, uh, the more I realized I'm not, I don't dread those moments anymore, but I actually enjoy them. For this reason, it's because that family is at a, such a vulnerable time and that I get the honor to be able to step in to be a part of this process, not just grieving, but just being able to remember. And one of the things I do is I'll, I'll sit down with the family and I will ask them, you know, tell me about your grandfather. Tell me about your grandmother. And sometimes I know the person who's passed away. Sometimes I don't. But usually what we'll do is we'll sit down and we will just talk. And they will give me many times some defining moments. Some of those big moments that their mom or their father or their sister or their uncle or aunt, how they meant to them. And what they meant to them. And we talk, and it's funny, as we talk, even though they're still grieving and the wounds are still fresh, you'll see smiles on people's faces, and some will start laughing because they'll remember some crazy things that, of this person's life who's, who's actually gone on. They remember some of these defining moments. And as, I think as much as we, I wish we could choose those big moments that define us, Many times I just don't think we can't. I don't think the, we can't choose those moments. Many times they're not of our choice. And sometimes it's something that happens to us. Maybe you're positive or negative. Maybe it's something that happens around us. Or maybe even something that happens within us. Sometimes these moments, they, defines, they maybe define seasons of our lives. Or maybe entire life. But really, what will your big moment be? And will you miss it? Or will you, at that moment, will you shine? What will your defining moment be? What will people say about you? What is the defining moment for you? Or again, or maybe it's a character trait. And we're going to see some really weird character traits in this book of Esther today. Um, We're going to be looking at some interesting individuals in this story, to say the least. And these characters are all just a little bit shady. They're a little bit morally ambiguous, and I'll, I'll define that term. They really don't, uh, don't really talk about what is right or wrong, and they definitely don't really do what is right or wrong. In fact, many times they do kind of what's wrong instead of what's right. And these characters in Esther get defined in, in time based upon decisions, everyday choices that they make. And there's some defining moments in this little book of Esther. Let me tell you a couple of them. Some are just kind of strange. Here's one you may not know of. You see, the Bible is not just one book, but it's a collection of 66 books. And every one of those 66 books mentions God's name except one. And the one that does not mention God's name at all is the book of Esther. That's different. I mean, you'd think something that made it into the Bible would actually be talking about God. But God never shows up in the book of Esther. He's kind of absent. In fact, if you're here today and you're not a Christian... You're going to love this book, right? You're not going to bump into God anywhere. In fact, get this. No one in the story of Esther ever prays. They never pray, right? In fact, they really don't really seek what God wants. And again, they make kind of really shady, fuzzy decisions. 
And um, it's just kind of a little strange. In fact, here's another thing you're not going to find in the book of Esther. There's no miracles. You know, some of you, you're like, I can't believe the Bible because, you know, I can't believe, you know, that God actually, you know, rose from the dead. Or maybe uh, that I can't believe that somebody would actually walk on water. Or I can't believe that someone would actually part the Red Sea. Well, good, you know what the good thing about this? There's no miracles in the story. So you're going to love it. You're going to love it. Now, here's the thing. If you're a Christian here, (laughs) you're going to be really frustrated with this book. You are. Because you're going to expect the author of this book to say, you know what? This person did this and it was wrong. But there is no commentary on it. And they do some really jacked up decisions. And nobody says, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that, right? I mean, the central plot of this story revolves around sex and a beauty pageant, right? So again, if you like beauty pageants and sex, you're going to love this book. You just will, all right? It's just some really strange stuff. Now, again, some of you, you probably never have read the book of Esther, And you know what? The reason why you may have not read is sometimes the church, they really don't know what to do with this book that's found its way into the Old Testament. In fact, let me give you a couple of things. Martin Luther, who founded, um, you know, Lutherans, right? If you're a Lutheran, all right, very good. Um, He was kind of uh, one of the big players of the Protestant Reformation in the 15th century. Um, He said privately, I don't think this book should be in the Bible. It was just too weird. There, there wasn't any mention of God. There wasn't, God seemed kind of absent from this book. Another guy um, named John Calvin, who during his ministry, he preached a sermon every day during his ministry. He never once preached a sermon on the book of Esther, and he has commentaries on 65 of the 66 books. Anybody want to guess which book is missing? Esther. Exactly right. Now, the church has just, for the longest time, have just kind of shot away from this book. Because God just seems absent. But our culture comes back time and time and again to this book. In fact, um, how many of y'all, do we have any like gamers in here, like Xbox, PlayStation, any folks? All right. How many have ever played the game Assassin's Creed? Let me see your hands. All right. Okay, very good. All right. Let me tell you, the guy in Assassin's Creed, the first person to get killed in Assassin's Creed with the hidden blade. All right. For those you're not gamers, let me explain that. What they would do is a hidden blade is assassin, you would, you know, they would cut off your ring finger. Sounds painful. And they would put like a hidden blade and you would flick your thing, you flick your wrist, and a blade would come out. And this literally happened in history that somebody killed the king that we're going to be talking about today, Xerxes. Everybody say Xerxes. Xerxes. He's, he's the king in Esther that we're going to be looking at today. That he was the first person killed in Assassin's Creed with the hidden blade. And true to, it's very true to the book excuse me, to the game, but he was actually assassinated in his bedchamber. We're going to see that um, uh, Xerxes spent a lot of time in his bedchamber, and you're going to see why. It's going to be a little jacked up, all right? Um, or how many of y'all have ever seen the movie 300? Let me see your hands. This is Xerxes. This is the dude who's like, you know, all buff, kind of looks like me, right? And he has the loincloth. That wasn't funny, right? <laughs> Anyway, and he has like the, the nose ring connected to the ear ring, connected to the hip bone. I mean, he talks like this, right? I mean, they came out with a new 300. I think it was called 301. I'm not sure. Um, and I think the prequel is going to be 299. I don't know. However, Xerxes shows up in this movie. It's, it, he's the king that the Spartans are, are battling against. So in this book... Characters don't pray. God's name's never mentioned. 
God seems absent. There's no miracles. There's no toddy endings. There's just a messy story filled with messy people living messy, morally ambiguous lives and making some really messed up decisions. And it's just, it's just strange. And again, if you're a Christ follower in here, you're going to really hate this book. And if you're not a Christ follower, you're going to be so glad you came to one church today. So let's start digging in to uh, Esther chapter 1, verse 1, and let's see that the writer set the stage for when Esther comes on the scene, and that same writer is setting the stage for a God who never seems to show up, a God who seems absent. Let's look at it. Esther chapter 1, verse 1 says this. These events happened in the days of King Who. Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. This guy was a global superpower. Xerxes, at this point, was the most powerful man on the planet. Now, some of you, you know Persia, and you kind of know where Persia is at. Some of you don't. So let me just do a quick geography lesson. Persia is the modern-day equivalent of Iran, So, just as Iran, exactly where Iran is at, that was where Persia and where the capital of Susa were going to be looking at, where a lot of this story is going to be happening, all right? So, Xerxes does not know God. He's not a follower of God. He's kind of a pagan king here. And yet, even though Xerxes doesn't know God, we're going to see that God can come through any doors of any place of power. And we're going to see that nothing can keep God out. Not, no matter who the king is, who the president, who the congress is, if God has a mind to move in and to do something, God is going to do it. And that should give you some comfort because some of you, you're angry about who's in congress right now if you're, if you're a Democrat. And if you're a Republican, you're angry about who's in the White House right now. And if you are a teabagger, you are mad at everybody, right? You just are, right? So here's the thing. It doesn't matter, really, who's in the White House and who's in Congress, who does all this. If God wants to be in there, he will be in there. In fact, this is, a, uh, this is from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, and it says this. The just as, just as water is, um, is actually curved into irrigation ditches, so the Lord directs the king's thoughts. He moves them wherever he wishes. You see, God, we're going to see, is ultimately in control. And it doesn't matter who is actually sitting on the throne. Now, this story actually happens 500 years before Jesus. It happens in the 5th century, about 483 B.C. And let me give you some context. I'm going to give you kind of the Old Testament in two minutes, right? So again, if you know nothing about the Bible, this is what happens. God creates stuff, and then he creates man. Man gets really jacked up. He sends a flood. Noah, by the way, don't see the movie. It's really messed up. All right? And then um, God chooses one person. His name is Abraham. And he tells Abraham, who's married to Sarah, I am going to take your son, and I'm from you. I am going to make a huge nation, and they will be my people, and I will be your God. And, and, and Abraham's like, um, I'm 100 years old, and my wife's 90, and we don't have any kids. <laughs> and, and God's like, I got this, right? So uh, Sarah goes to Victoria's Secret, gets something nice, and... <laughs> She gives birth at 90 years old, and she gives birth to a boy by the name of Isaac, which means laughter. If you gave birth at 90 years old, you would either cry or laugh, all right? So, and what's so cool about Isaac 
is that God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac comes true. And eventually, over hundreds of years, the, the descendants of Isaac, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, they become God's people, the Jews or the Hebrews. And here's what, here's what God tells them. God tells them, you know what, if you obey me, it's going to go well for you. And if you obey me, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you um, houses that you didn't build and wells that you didn't dig, and, and I'm going to give you grapes that you didn't plant. And that's exactly what God does in the book of Joshua. He gives them a land. But God also promises this, if you don't listen to me and you disobey me, I am going to raise up your enemies, and they are going to remove you from the land. And what we're going to see over hundreds and hundreds of years of the Old Testament is simply this. The Jews, the Hebrews, God's people disobeying God. And God is patient. God is loving. But eventually, God pulls the goalie, and he says, okay, here's the thing. I'm going to raise up your enemies. And that's exactly what happened because in 586 B.C., God raised up a pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who was the king of Babylon. By the way, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Some of you, uh, you know exactly where you've been there, right? So Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians totally destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and they bring all of God's people thousands of miles back to Babylon. And there they're held captive for 70 years. That nation of Israel is gone. And then after 70 years, Babylon starts, their power starts waning, and God raises up another superpower called the Persians. That's who we're talking about today. And the Persians conquer the Babylonians, and there's a new king in town. His name is King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. He shows up, this Persian king, and he tells the Hebrews, the Jews, you know what, you don't have to stay here anymore. You guys can go back to Israel. You can go back and you can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You can go back and you can rebuild the temple, and you can get on with your worship of your God. And you know what, here's what happens. The faithful Jews, the faithful Hebrews, they leave and they go back to Israel and they rebuild. And you see Ezra rebuilding the temple there. You see Nehemiah rebuilding the walls, the walls around Jerusalem to protect them. And all the faithful go back. But guess what? Some of the Jews don't leave and they stay in the heart of Persia. They stay in the heart of Persia. And you see that they could have gone home. In fact, that would have been the faithful thing to do, to go back to the land that God has given you. But no one in the book of Esther prays. No one in the book of Esther really seeks God. These characters we're going to look at today are kind of living morally ambiguous and fuzzy lives. These Jews have become so assimilated into Persian culture, they've become compromised. In fact, we're going to see they can't even read the Hebrew Bible anymore. They can't even read Hebrew anymore because they can only read the language of Persia. They've become more Persian than Jewish. And the Jews who chose to remain in Persia would have had every reason to believe that God would no longer have any use for them, that God would have no further use for them, that God would have left them. There would be no miracles. There would be no voice from God. And that God seemed absent. 
Let's keep on digging in. Verses 3 and 4. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for, uh, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and his officials. He invited all the military officers of Persia, as well as the princes and the nobles of all the provinces. The celebration lasted how long? 180 days. How long is that? Six months. I mean, so they are having a party for six months. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. I don't know how long of parties you've been to, but I'm pretty sure none of us have been in a party that's lasted six months, right? Now, look what it says in verse 7. And by the way, before I dig in, if you're a Christian, this is just kind of fuzzy. It doesn't say it's right or it doesn't say it wrong, and you're going to be frustrated by this. But look at this. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there were, was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. And as we keep on reading, God doesn't show up in this. It's a six-month party, a drunk fest. Uh, where's God? Keep on going. By the edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And since Xerxes was probably the most interesting person who ever lived, he probably served dos equis, right? And everybody was thirsty, and they kept on drinking and drinking. Xerxes' rule was that there was no rule about drinking. Look what it says in verse 10. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine. By the way, again, you'd expect the commentator, the person who's writing, says, you know what, this is not such a good idea, right? Maybe not such a good idea to get drunk for six months. But he didn't say that. We expect him to. doesn't. Keep on going. Because when high spirits, because of the wine, he told his servants who attended them to bring the queen, Queen Vashti, to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a beautiful woman. So, the point of Xerxes' six-month party was to display all of his wealth and his stuff, and yet Xerxes still has one more unrivaled prize to exhibit, his wife. Imagine if you were Xerxes' wife. How would you feel? In fact, let me ask you this, ladies, don't raise your hands, but have you ever felt like the conquest of a man before? Like you're the trophy wife, like, like your husband, when he was dating you, he wooed you and he dined you and he did all of this nice stuff for you, but now that he's got you, he really doesn't do anything to continue to win your heart? And I'm sure Queen Vashti felt like a pound of flesh. In fact, we're going to read that she's pretty angry. She gets ticked, right? In fact, this is what it says in verse 12. But when the king conveyed the king's order, but when they conveyed the king's order to the queen, Queen Vashti, she, re what? Refused to come. This made the king, what? Furious, and he burned with anger. Uh-oh. Party over. Right? Have you ever been over somebody's house and it just got awkward because somebody got into a fight? Anyone? All right. I've been there. In fact, I've been one of the ones fighting, right? I mean, you probably have as well. And it's like the king is mad, the queen is mad, and all the other people going, oh, look what time it is. The babysitter's been watching the kids for six months. It's time to go. Let's grab a coat, right? It just gets weird. It gets awkward. Xerxes is the most powerful person on the planet, but he can't force his wife 
to do anything. And nothing has changed much, has it? All right, keep on going. Verse 13, he immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and the customs for he always asked for their advice. And then here was the advice. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's order? So this wounded lion is asking all of his guy friends, hey, what do you think I should do? And this is what he said. Mamukin answered, by the way, not Metamucil, but Mamukin. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands. And some of you are thinking, begin? Right? Um, and when they learn of what Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. Now that's going to be very important because as we continue to dig through the book of Esther, a law that cannot be revoked. We're going to see that when the king makes a law, even the king can't revoke it. Keep on going. It should order that the Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. More worthy than she. So ultimately they're saying, she gone. Verse 20, with this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive the proper respect from their wives. Again, guys, how's that going for us? Right? All right. All right, then it goes to the last four verses that we're going to be looking at today out of Esther, and it says this. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti. Stop right there, guys. When you're angry, let me just stop there. You don't think. All right? Some of you, uh, ladies, I see you out there. Listen to him, right? Okay? Don't need your help, ladies. I thank you. Uh, but let's think of this. There's so many verses in Proverbs that says when you're hot-tempered and when you're angry, you make dumb mistakes. And we're going to see he, he's, he's feeling some remorse here. So after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree that he had made. So his personal attendant suggested, hey, let's search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. In other words, let's go get you a queen. Let the king appoint agents in each of the provinces to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Hegei, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the harem, by the way, always put a eunuch in charge of the harem. But um, All right, these are the jokes, people. Uh, we, will, we will see that Hegei will see that they are given all beauty treatments. And after that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king. I guess so, right? So he puts the plan into effect. And we're going to see next week. That this is just frustrating on so many levels. Because as we're going to see next week, there's no commentary that this is wrong. There's no commentary that says, hey, they shouldn't have went partying for six months. There's no commentary that says, you know what? Because what happens, they're going to take all of these girls, and we're going to see Esther is going to use sex to influence the king, and no, you're, you're going to expect somebody to pull Esther aside and say, you know what, God made you and God made your body and you need to wait, or you need to do this to honor God, or maybe you should marry a pagan king, maybe you should, you know, not compromise your beliefs, but th that commentary never comes, because we're dealing with a group of people who are just kind of shady and kind of fuzzy, 
And, and again, as a Christian, it's just kind of frustrating because you have these ideas that if we do this, and God will do this, and if I do this, and God will do this, and i got to kind of intervene. And, but we see in this story that it's just kind of messy, and God doesn't really seem to show up, and it's just kind of frustrating. And yeah, I want to ask, where is God in all of this? In fact, nowhere in the, in the verses we looked at is the mention of Esther. Where's Esther in all of this, right? Where is God in all of this? And I know it's frustrating, maybe, one of the things I hope as we land the plane today is that you could just simply get some encouragement from this book as well. Because this story is filled with some morally jacked up folks. And God is nowhere to be found. And that encourages me. And let me tell you the reason why it encourages me. Because some of us, if we were to be honest, there are huge parts of our lives that feel more like Esther than some of the other stories found in the Bible. You know, very rarely do I ever see, um, I, I experience the courage that Joshua did of when he went into the promised land. Or, or is, my life just doesn't really resemble David and Goliath or Daniel shutting the mouths of lions or any of that. That sometimes my life consists of me making some really bad decisions and I'm trying to figure out where God is in all of this. And some of you, this should give you some really big Good news today, because some of you, you're here, and you've made some really bad choices in your past, and you, you think this, you know what, I don't think God can be in the middle of any of this. I don't think God is really listening to me. I don't think, I don't think God really wants to have a relationship with me because of all of the bad choices that I've made, of all, I've just messed up too much, that God could never use me. But the story of the book of Esther is simply this. God has not turned your back on you. The really strange thing about the book of Esther is that we're going to see that God is present even when God seems absent. That's our big idea today. That God is present even when God seems absent. Can you say that with me today? God is present even when God seems absent. Even though God is never mentioned in this book. Nobody prays, no miracles are done, nobody is really seeking what God wants. They actually are, are making fuzzy decisions and trying to see how far they can push the law without breaking it. That somehow, in this mess, God is present. That it made it into the Bible. That God is wanting to write an incredible story, even though in this story nobody seems to be paying any attention of what God wants. If there's a message, any message that's found in the book of Esther is simply that God is present even when he seems absent. That God is present. And for some of you, this comes as incredible good news because some of you are here and you're not a Christian. And the reason why you're not a Christian is because when you look at the world and you look at our culture and you, you ask the question, where is God in all of this? Really? I mean, where is God in all of this? I mean, you look at the decisions that are being made, you look at the problems, you look at people's struggles, and your conclusion is that God is absent. And how could there be a loving God with all of this junk that's swirling around and in the middle of all of this world crisis? I mean, how can there be a God when God allows 
bad things to happen to these people? And how can a God allow women to be treated like that? And how can God, how, how can God be present in the midst of people who have absolute power, who do nothing but bad things with that power? And how that people just fall away from faith. Maybe your issue with faith in Christianity and God in the Bible is that you knew some people who talked the talk of Christianity. You knew some people that walked the walk of Christianity. And they fell and they, and they crashed and burned with their faith. And, and you're thinking, if God was really present, that would have never happened. Some of you, if you're a Christian here, the reason why you're struggling with God and your faith is that God seems absent in your circumstances. God seems absent in your life. That you've been praying a prayer over and over and over and over, and it doesn't seem that God is listening. Some of you, you've been praying for your marriage for years, that God would be at the center of your marriage and that your marriage would get better. But your marriage isn't getting any better. And your conclusion is that God is absent. Others of you, you've been praying for a child for years. That this child will get back, come back. But the child isn't coming back. And things are getting worse. And your conclusion, that God is absent. Others of you, you're here and you have been longing to conceive. You've been wanting a child for years, you've been crying out to God. And you've been, if he was here, you would yell at the top of your lungs, am I just not good enough? Do you not love me enough? Are, are you even here? Do you even exist? God, you seem absent. The book of Esther should give you and I hope. Because God doesn't like obviously show up. And there are no miracles here in this book. And we can cry, how come you don't answer? How come you don't listen? But even though God is not, is not present, God is present, even when he seems absent. And I think we shouldn't confuse God's name not being in this book with God's fingerprints being all over this book because God's fingerprints are all over this. He's working behind the scenes. He's just not blatantly obvious. There aren't any huge miracles. There, there's no parting of the Red Sea. And for some of you, that's how your life resembles. God's not blatantly obvious in your life. And you say, God, if you would just show me a miracle, do a miracle in my life, then. But there are no miracles. And there's only the mundane. There's just ordinary. What's so cool about this book is that we're going to see God show up in the ordinary. That God is going to show up in the ordinary story of this book. And he's going to do some amazing things, not with miracles, but through the mundane, through the ordinary, small decisions that eventually makes up character. And you and I, we're going to see through this, that God shows up in the mundane, ordinary, unmiraculous, normal ways, and that God is present, even though he seems absent. What happens to your faith when no miracle comes? What happens when you cannot find him in the miraculous, but you know he's there? 
He's there in the ordinary. Have you, anybody lost God? Anyone? I have. There's been times and seasons in my life that I have lost God. I've lost God in circumstances. I've lost God in dumb decisions that people have done on me or dumb decisions I've made myself. And this book shows us that even though you may have lost God, God has not lost you. That God is, is wanting to find you. He is wanting to have a relationship. Even though you're struggling through life, through circumstances, through a job, through a family, through maybe deployments, and God doesn't make any sense that God is present, even when he seems absent. We may feel like God is absent, but you need to hear this. Our feelings aren't facts. Some of you need to hear that. Your feelings aren't facts. Just because you feel it doesn't make it truth. Let me tell you what is true. God and God's word. And God's word says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can't go someplace that I am not there. In fact, our last verse of the day. This is Psalm 139, verse 7. I can, what? Never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence or be out of your sight. If I go up to heaven, guess what? You are there. If I go down to the grave, what's happening? You are there. If I ride with the rings of the morning, you are there. If I dwell by the farthest oceans, you are there. You'd find me in a minute. Why? Because you're already there waiting. He is everywhere. He is in every decision, every circumstance. God is not absent. He's not. Though you may not be able to find him, he is always working behind your scenes. Through through insignificant, seemingly insignificant details of the ordinary parts of your life, he is working. The thing I like, I like about this, and I want to read this because I got this from a, a Bible teacher by the name of Beth Moore, and she says this, God is not appearing on the page by name on purpose because he has some lessons to teach us about when we cannot find him. We have to look into the ordinary parts of our life. So I'm going to just give you a quick challenge. First challenge is this. This next week, I'm going to challenge you to read the book of Esther. It's not long. In fact, it's going to take you 25 minutes to read through the book of Esther. So if you do it in one day, it's going to take you. If you break it up over two days, that's... Well, thank you. I was, I was trying to... How do you break 25 into two and you carry the one and then you... do? Right? (laughs) Um, If you break it up into five days, that's five minutes, and it's still going to be, thank you very much. All right? So I'm going to challenge you. Read the book of Esther. You can go on YouVersion right now, and there is a plan, and you can go and you can read the book of Esther. You totally do that. All right? And then secondly, I just want to challenge you with this. We've asked, where is God in this story But let me challenge you by asking another question. Where is God in your story? Is he even there? Some of you, you know he's not there. You know you don't have a relationship with him. And he's on the fringes and he's kind of working some things and he kind of shows up from time to time. It's like, oh, I think maybe God did that or something. But you really don't trust him, really don't believe him. And you're kind of living kind of fuzzy lives. Maybe I'm doing some things that maybe you shouldn't. And you think God can never 
God will never, ever want a relationship with me. You couldn't be more wrong. God longs to have a relationship with you. And even though he's not being blatantly obvious, even though he seems absent in your life, he is present. He is. So my challenge for you, figure out where God is in your story. And don't just, don't just confine him to the miraculous. Because if you're waiting for the miracle in your life, some of you are going to be waiting a long time. Let's be honest. I've never seen God part the Red Sea. Never seen it. I've never heard an audible voice from God. I haven't. One of the things I've learned is even though I make some bad choices and some dumb decisions, that God can and will show up in my ordinary day. He can show up on a rainy Sunday afternoon, February the 1st of 2015, in the ordinariness of a school. And he longs to have a relationship with you. If you will just listen. Not for the bigness, not for the booming and the, not the miraculous. But this still small voice that for some of you, you're hearing for the first time right now. Because God he is present. He is with you. And he longs to have a relationship with you. He does.